This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture, with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Architects are expected to have a working mastery of building science and technology, construction techniques and methodologies, all while bringing everything together in a visually pleasing manner. If that didn't sound a lot like something extremely difficult to pull off, then I didn't do a very good job introducing today's topic for episode 76, the critical skills of an architect. Today's episode is generously brought to you with support from BQE Core Architect, cloud-based software for time and expense tracking, billing, and accounting. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're going to talk about the critical skills of an architect, which I'm going to concede is a wildly broad topic. So, <laughs> right? It's so, only slightly, only slightly broad. I know. So, you know, and the thing is, is, when I was putting all this together, I thought, well, it depends on what sort of architect you want to be and what kind of work do you want to practice in. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to try to tamp all that down. So the challenge of our conversation today will really be to figure out what sort of architect we're talking about. So as I was preparing and putting my notes together for today's shows, and I just kept repeating this question over and over in my mind, I thought, I'll just go with the things that just pop into my mind first and go from there. So if I think, what are the critical skills for an architect? What is the first couple of things that pop into my mind? However, <laughs> there's already a disclaimer. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We're starting to show off strong. So there might be some considerations to the evolution of the sorts of skills that architects need. So before we actually hit record on this, Andrew and I were talking about it. And I was saying the skills that I needed, like if I was to say, what are the critical skills of a 25-year-old person who wants to be an architect or a 35-year-old or a 45-year-old or a 55? They're different. Yeah, vastly different for the stages of your career, for sure. Yeah. And the thing is, is the critical skills I needed when I was thinking about becoming an architect are different what they are now that I'm 30 years into my career. Now, the other moving part to that is I don't think the critical skills I have now could have been developed had I not gone through the evolution of critical skills when I was in my 20s and 30s. So that's a big part of what makes today's conversation a little challenging. So what I thought would make sense is to just think about in the beginning. On day one, like in the beginning, before there was light, dun, dun, dun. there was Bob's list of critical <laughs> skills for an architect. <laughs> well, that makes me sound really old, but so that's what we're going to focus on. It is written on stone tablets. I do believe. This I is did. Fair. My show notes are carved on stone tablets, by the way. <laughs> so we're going to focus in on what we're supposed to be talking about, which is critical skills and critical in my mind means that without these abilities, being an architect is going to be a struggle for you. So we're not talking about the critical skills that Bob Borson has as a 47-year-old architect. We're talking about the critical skills that person X needs to have should they want to be an architect. And then if you're an architect and you're listening to this and you're just nodding along going, yep, that's right, they nailed it, then this episode's not really for you other than it's a, <laughs> it's a confirmation that we're on the right track. Punt out now. No, please don't yeah. do that. There's going to be something to learn, right? I think what will happen is people will either agree with us, which I think they will, 
Yeah. No, no. I hope so. Yeah. So I have four items that I put on the list. These are the four items that I'm going to want to, yeah. I'm going to hit up. I would be hard pressed to imagine that somebody who's been in the business for a while would say, that's wrong. Like, that's not important. I'm not worried about that. Yeah. I think the real issue is narrowing it down to four, not disagreeing with the four that there is, but it could be 10. Again, it depends on what you are, but we don't have that kind of time. <laughs> we don't have that kind of time. And I will tell you that I saved a little kind of bonus things at the end, like being a good mixologist is a quality of being an architect. <laughs> it's not necessarily a skill that you need to have in order to be an architect. Okay. Hmm. All right. So you want to get into this list? Do you want to get to it? Yeah, let's do it. Let's okay. do it. These are not in any particular order other than that's how they came out of my brain. So when I thought of like, what's a critical skill? And I will tell you, if you're expecting for me to say hand sketching, you're completely out of line. Because <laughs> right? that, that's not on this list. Because you know what? That is not a critical skill that you need to have to be an architect these days. Yeah. No. No. I don't think so. Part of the show could have been, what are the critical skills that you think you need that you don't actually need? And I would put hand sketching at the top of that list. I think that's like a bonus skill, maybe. Yeah. It's not required, but it's a bonus. I did some research for this episode, actually, to your surprise, I'm sure. I'm stunned. Wait, hold on. I need to get off the floor. <laughs> a lot of the lists I saw were like 10 to 12, some were even 15 critical skills or essential skills. And I thought that most of them were kind of on point, but some of them were still a little bit off. Most of them were from like career, job, site. I mean, they weren't from architecture sites, but they were like the National Job Resource Center. Right. So while some of them were on point, and actually a couple of them are in our list, I think that if you are a young person, you're looking at these things, maybe not put 100% of stock into what you can find online about what the required skills are to be an architect. That's true. Because advanced math skills were right in there. And yeah. I'm just like, it's absurd. Oh. You know what? It's funny. So I came up my list and I did the same thing. I punched in. I said, okay, if, if I'm little Bobby B and I decide that I want to check out the internet to see if 16 year old me has what it takes, mm -hmm. do I have the things that would get me off on the right foot to be an architect? So I did type in that same kind of description. You know, what are the critical skills for an architect? And it's all like careers.org slash architecture yeah, vocation. Exactly. You know, it's all these yeah, like really yeah. generic things. And most of the things they put on there, I thought were either so generic as to be like, what does architecture have to do with any of that? You know, I go, whatever. Like, it's fine. Yeah. That's a good skill to have regardless of what your vocation is. So it doesn't invalidate its role on this list. But yeah, I saw stuff like temperament was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought, I thought, okay, well, I can see why if you're fairly balanced and, and I go, but then at the same time, one of the things that I thought about as a quality was passion. I go, how can you have like an even temperament and still have passion? I don't know how those two go together. Maybe. So I broke this up into qualities versus skills. So we're talking skills, not qualities. I will say one of my other favorites besides the advanced math was one of them had something about you need to have legal knowledge. And I was like, what? It's like, no young, I mean, yeah, maybe when you get to our age, maybe some, that's just stuff that you learn over time. Coming into the profession, legal knowledge, I was like, that's senseless. That's pointless. Yeah. That's the internet's whack. Right. I so, know. <laughs> I know. Okay. So here we go. We're going to start off with item number one on my list, which was critical thinking. And I do think that this is important, but I do feel like we should shed some light on what critical thinking actually is because it's a term that's thrown around a lot. 
but I feel pretty confident if I were to ask people to define it for me, I bet the number that actually defined it would be pretty low. In other words, not everybody's a critical thinker. (laughs) So this is my definition. So in short, critical thinking is a person's ability to take disparate information and make independent and logical connections with that information. So it's a process. It's an active process of forming new thoughts rather than just passively receiving and regurgitating information. Critical thinking has to do with you taking different pieces of information and you summarizing them into an output that is not necessarily a one plus one plus two kind of process, right? You're not just saying, oh, if I turn on the heat, I will get warm. That's not critical thinking. No, no. Yeah. I would agree with that and say, you know, my definition maybe aligns with that in a sense of being able to take separate pieces of information, critically analyze them and put them into a coherent whole. Yeah. That there's some process there that's involved in that. But you're right. It's not about rote memorization or anything yeah. like that. You're not just regurgitating. Like, you know, I used to think of it really simply as like, if you read two books and book one talks about this one topic and book two talks about a separate topic, you're able to read both books and then take the information you learned from both books and come up with new thoughts. Mm-hmm. You're able to find corollaries and connections because I learned what was in book A and I learned what was in book B. I could then make an extrapolated thought that could be the formation of book C. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So what does that mean where it comes to architecture? I thought this is really hard to describe other than just describing what critical thinking is. So a good way to describe it is really from this quote that I found from an architect named Nick Axel, who is currently the head of the architecture department at the Jarrett Riefeld Academy in the Netherlands. So I had to go online. I will put a link to this because there's a whole interview. I remember reading this and finding it. I think it's like five or six years old. So the way he describes it, he says, and again, this is what critical thinking and the role that it plays specifically related to architecture, not just life. So it says, projects traditionally come with loads of constraints, and a designer or planner has certain space to maneuver in which to be creative. But some points within these constraints can be unacceptable for political or cultural reasons. We have to practice critical thinking to navigate within a field of constraints to negotiate our way beyond them. Critical thinking allows architects to understand who we build for and why we're building in the first place. It allows us to advance our own agenda, a political and ideological one. And he goes on to say, as designers, we're constantly required to learn and understand more and more. There's a hidden layer to each project, the site, the context, the client, the local culture, the local population, which is essential to discover because it's not something that's readily out there. Working with this knowledge, scratching beneath the surface, gives the designer a deeper understanding of the society that they are intervening into and better equipped to make a positive contribution to it. And I went, I'd say it's a really good way to describe it. It just has to do with, look, there's like a hundred moving parts that are out there and our ability to come up with projects and designs that fit within an urban fabric and the user group and solve the programming and all the different types of people that use it versus the people that walk around it. And how does that fit into the culture of that environment? I mean, this isn't one plus one equals two problem solving. No, no, no. And that's essentially what critical thinking is. And I think this also goes on to feed into something that I know I've said a few times. I've definitely written about it a few times. It has to do with, I think, the best types of architects 
the ones that are really good at critical thinking are radial thinkers. There is no linear thought process that they go through. Because linear is the, I do this, then I do this, then I do this. And that the summary of that is this solution. Yeah. And radial thinkers consider all things at the same time and compress towards a solution in the middle. And I think that's essentially why architects, if you give a problem to 10 architects, you get 10 different solutions. Yeah, definitely. I think it's that A to B to C, like you say, linear thing that is, I think, what separates us from engineers even in that respect, right, is critical thinkers. Because I mean, I would say that engineers are critical thinkers as well, but it's just a different way where they are very linear, but we are not. We are very radial or I'm sure there's another bunch of ways to talk about it, like wrangling octopus legs in a way, but that kind of thought process to bring it all together at some point into, a, like I mentioned before, a coherent solution that meets all these criteria in some way that, again, is different for every architect, but we still manage to try to, to do it. Yeah. I think about mores and values, you know, like the things that society deems are acceptable. Like there are unwritten rules that tell you spitting on old women, it's not okay. <laughs> right? Like yeah. maybe there's a law that says if you spit on an elderly person, you're going to get in trouble. Like you can go to jail for that. I, I don't know. I never actually looked it up. But, <laughs> but I think that as a society, we all can agree without having to have a, a meeting to discuss it that that is not acceptable behavior, right? So there's things that are acceptable within our culture that help us form solutions to very real-world problems and practical solutions like, I need this to be this tall and this wide, and I need it to function this capacity, but at the same time, what is acceptable and what works in our society has to figure into that process as well. That's why our critical thinking problems and the way that we go about solving problems critically is different from a lot of other user groups. Mm -hmm. I think maybe the notion that as architects, we're never really solving one problem at a time. It's always solving multiple problems in somewhat simultaneously as we move through the process. So that rarely, I think, is anything ever solved in a vacuum. That's kind of what you're alluding to. We probably do have that ability, but that's not where our strong suit is, and that's not how our profession works. Yeah, so that's why I made that one number one on my list. Of course, there's an ebb and flow to it, and there's a way that it kind of evolves through your career, but it's certainly a trait that you can exhibit it or you don't exhibit it when you're a younger person. I will say from my experience, even in teaching first-year architecture students, that that is something that you can learn or you can cultivate. It's not that if you don't have it right now that you can't have the capacity to do it, but I do think that it's really important for you to have at least very quickly within your education and definitely early in the profession. Well, that's why these are skills. Skills suggest, or at least it infers that you can learn them. Yeah. You can see a shortcoming in the, how you do something and you can strive and work and endeavor to be better at it. So that's why these are skills. Okay, so that was number one on my list. I was going to say, I think that's a great definition of the critical thinking, how it relates to architecture. That's really fantastic. I'm going to have to cut that excerpt for some of my classes. <laughs> yeah, again, the whole interview is really interesting. The guy clearly is smart. He uses a lot of big words, which after a while, that gives me tired head. I feel like I have a pretty good vocabulary, but at times I go, the skill set is to be able to communicate without using words that have 17 syllables in them right mm -hmm. there's a little bit of that where my buddy nick axel is concerned so more from life of an architect in just a moment 
Andrew and I are joined once again by our good friend, Steve Burns, FAIA and Chief Creative Officer for BQE Software. How are you doing, Steve? I am fantastic, Bob. Thank you. It's nice having you back on the show. We always enjoy having our little educational business chats when you come on. So thank you for the time. I always learn from you when we get together. <laughs> those parts don't make the show, though. We cut those parts out. Yeah. <laughs> Before we get into our chat today, I thought that we'd take a minute and just tell everybody a little bit about why you're on, and it has to do with BQE. So here's a little back history for everybody who is familiar with Steve and being on our show as often as he has, but doesn't understand why we have him on a show. Founded in 1995, BQE is a leading cloud-based software provider to professional service firms worldwide. After acquiring Archie Office in 2009, BQE solidified its foothold in the architecture industry while expanding the company's offerings to include project accounting and CRM. And we're going to be talking about the flagship product, BQE Core, which is a comprehensive cloud-native business management platform that streamlines the billing and accounting process while improving operational efficiency. Named as one of the best business software solutions for invoicing and billing by PCMag, Core is recognized for its intuitive features that simplify and automate operations for business owners and their teams, especially those in service-based businesses like architecture. That brings me to what I want to talk to today. I'm hijacking this entire conversation for my own benefit. I would like to talk to you, Steve, about how BQE makes the process of running an architectural firm better, how the software makes data more useful, how you get the information into the hands of the right people at the right time. You, me, and Andrew actually have talked about this a number of times over this process. So that's what I want to get into, the automated process, how you can capture data, and then how you can automate the distribution of that data, and why there's value in that. Really, time is money. Yeah, time is money. And probably the biggest issue firms have is they don't like capturing data is an annoyance. It's interruption in their day. And worse yet is because they don't have a single source of truth, which is what we refer to our database. They have lots of different applications, which they have to feed in order to get the information out of it that they generally require. It's just inefficient. It's just a pain in the neck. So what we try to do is first is build a database that we also refer to as the mother of all databases. So all the information that a firm would want to know about its business and its projects and its employees and its clients is in that single source of truth, which is also what we refer to as in real time. Meaning anytime you look at the data, you don't ever have to think twice, like, did somebody get their Excel spreadsheet over to so-and-so so that they can update this thing that I'm looking at? You never worry that you're not looking at real live information. I sometimes talk about it as think about your gas tank on your car, assuming you still drive a internal combustion engine. <laughs> you know, if your gas tank only reported back to you once every two weeks about the state of the remaining fuel in your tank, you're going to end up on the side of the road. Yes. You're really not in charge of the trip at all. So we think if you have real-time information, just like that gas tank and all the other metrics that you see inside of a dashboard on a car, you're comfortable. You feel more relaxed. You enjoy the sure. trip a little bit more and the stress really reduces. So that's why having real-time data is really important. So we try to make it easy. Get the data in that single source of truth that collects data for all different sides of your business. And then the reporting out of it is a whole nother issue. This is a topic that is particularly germane to me because we're chatting with each other. It's Monday, and I've grown to hate Mondays because as the kickoff to my week, there's all these internal meetings that I'm a part of, which are important for me to be part of. 
But I don't love the hours and hours and hours of scheduling and efficiency versus utilization conversations and staffing and who's doing what, who's available, when do they free up and when's this project going to be done? And then we look at the billing and this, it's all the stuff that goes into running a firm. There's a point you talked about earlier about how does this get in the hands of people who need it? Yeah. So there's information. And I think the most valuable feature that I see in our core platform is what we call scheduled reporting. The idea is Bob needs to get this information in a report once a week or every two weeks or once a month. And I will just schedule the report to go to Bob at Fridays at four o'clock because I know that's for some reason why Bob likes to look at this stuff. And the system does it for you. Yeah, or yeah. maybe my project managers at 7 a.m. every Monday morning, because we all love Mondays. So the first thing that they see when they wake up in the morning and they get out of bed and they open up their mobile phone and they see they got mail, it's mail that's coming from the core platform with all those reports to help them understand what the state of all their projects is, who's working on it this week and for how many hours, what are the project milestones, what are the pending RFIs and submittals, all that kind of stuff. No one had to stop put anything together, make a PDF, print it out, whatever they do, or email it, and then send it to somebody at a date and a time that's not helpful to them. We like to say, make the data come when they're most likely to read it. Yeah. And no one's behind it. It's just automated. So the automation of data delivery is really hugely beneficial. Oh, yeah. I think that's the sort of thing that all of us would probably benefit from having that information when we need it and having it restricted to what we need. Special thanks to our sponsor, BQE Core Architect, cloud-based software for time and expense tracking, billing, and accounting. Visit bqe.com forward slash LOAA and receive 20% off a 12-month subscription to Core Architect. And special thanks also to Steve Burns, FIA, for joining us again. Always a treat. Uh, likewise for me, Bob. Thank you, Bob and Andrew, for inviting me back. Oh, yeah. It's always a good time. Enjoy it. Our pleasure. Which is actually an excellent segue to the second critical skill that is on my list, which is excellent verbal communication skills. So just generically speaking, communication. Yeah. Your ability to do it. This is something that I have talked about endlessly over the last 10 years. Ad nauseum. You know, and it, it's an interesting topic for me because at no point in my education was communication and the ability to talk to somebody or explain what you're doing or how do you explain the moves that you're making in a way that someone else feels like they're part of that process, that we're not using jargon and lingo that excludes the very people that we're trying to communicate with from what we're trying to describe to them. It was never discussed. And over the last 20 years, the single greatest skill set that I've seen, and maybe it's just because I value it, I appreciate it when I see it on display more. Maybe it's become disproportionate in my own mind. But when I say excellent communication skills, it's not oratory skills, or at least it's not just your ability to stand up in front of a room full of people and not stammer and stutter and awe and um the crowd to sleep. It's not necessarily presentation type skills. Yeah. It's your ability to interpret what is being said. It's your ability to read between the sentences that people are speaking so that one example I used to use all the time is whenever I would have a client who would single in on one item just like repeatedly 
say like ice cubes. I actually think I've talked about this on the site like 10 years ago. And it had to do with discussions, the amount of time I've talked about the shape of ice cubes on residential projects. <laughs> yeah, I don't doubt. Is it square? Is it nugget ice? Is it chewy? Is it crescent? Is it cloudy? Is it clear? Is it under counter? Is it a standalone? I mean, I've had so many ice cube shaped conversations. Everybody wants that sonic ice. It's staggering to think about. But what I've kind of started to, as I matured a little bit, what I realized is that a lot of times the people that we're working with, they want to feel like they're part of the process. They want to contribute. So you can pay attention to the things that people zero in on and you can understand that, hey, their act of contributing and participating is in these areas because that's what they understand. So that tells me that I might need to change my tone or my language or the things that I'm focusing in on so that they can participate. So if I made my presentations all about how do I frame this wall in a double top plate and we're going to end up doing a Gertz in this location, they're lost and they don't want to act like, I don't understand what you're saying. So they don't engage, they don't participate, but then all of a sudden they latch mm -hmm. onto something like the shape of an ice cube and they demonstrate like an unreasonable amount of like passion towards mastery of ice cube types. Right. So it tells you that, hey, maybe you need to change the way you're speaking to people so that all the things that you're discussing with these folks, they're able to understand in a way that it's not talking down to them, but it's engaging them in such a way to where they feel like, yeah, I understand what you're saying. I want to contribute and I want to be part of this process. That's a big deal. And sometimes the way that process kind of manifests itself, which is something that I think that I'm actually really good at, is creating narratives. Sometimes that's just telling a story in order to make a point as opposed to just blurting out what the point could be. If I say, hey, we're going to talk about this. And then you tell a little anecdote about the process in such a way that they go, okay, I understand what you're saying. But I don't do that after they've raised their hand and they said, I don't understand what you're talking about. Because, you know, few people actually in a professional environment raise their hand to say, I don't understand that. I don't understand. Yeah. Right. Very rare. Yeah. So it's like reading facial descriptions, body languages, understanding how people are, are receiving the information that I'm trying to explain. And then if I'm not getting the cues that it's coming across, I need to change the way that I'm speaking to folks. You know, we talked about it. I don't know if it was the last episode or the one before, but I used to have this pattern of like talking down to people. And the thing was, it didn't come from, from a superior position. This is the thing that some people might not have understood. It came from a, me really wanting to help people understand, but my ability to explain something without putting myself in a professorial kind of role and they're the student. And let me tell you how this is. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to say, here's how this works. I'm trying to give you information so that you are now empowered to make that decision. It's not just me saying, get out of the way, listen to what I'm about to tell you, and that's what you're going to do. So that's the communication part. And that's really, really important. And I think that you were correct in the beginning about this is not something that gets typically exposure during your education. Because really a lot of that is your communication at that point is geared towards those big words and architecture lingo and all those kinds of things because you're trying to talk to other people that understand your language. And I think that it's the skill set, like you say, of being able to explain that architectural language to other people that don't understand it is where that transition is and where that's, what's the critical point of that. 
not that there's not use in being able to explain yourself to other people that understand your language, right? Because I mean, that's useful in job site meetings and I mean, all these other places that we talked about, but being able to make that translation of what that really means to someone who doesn't understand all that jargon is a really big point. Honestly, it's not easy for everybody to do. No, it's certainly not easy. And this is also, you know, at the beginning of the show, we talked about how these critical skills evolve over time and they evolve over your career. Because let's be honest, most people when they get out of school, you don't need them to have terrific communication skills, not from a, a business development or from a business execution standpoint. Obviously, good communication skills help you in every facet of your everyday life. But as you move along the growth arc of this profession, the more time you have in front of a client, the better you're going to get at being able to understand how to communicate in a way that they receive in a positive and constructive and educational manner without it coming across that you're just Bob on the Hill preaching down to the client who's hired you to do whatever it is that you're doing for them. Right. I mean, I would say really at that early stage of your career, I think the bigger point for communication is just being able to communicate your ideas and your thoughts clearly. And then another aspect of that is not being afraid to do that. And I'm not saying being arrogant about it, but not being afraid to go ahead and ask questions or to say the things that you're thinking, because without that, you don't get any kind of feedback loop to help you grow. Mm -hmm. I think with my students, that's one of the biggest communication efforts that I make is just talk, talk about what you're thinking and what your ideas are or what your questions are, because that's the only way you're going to get feedback and be able to improve what you're doing. I mean, I'll be realistic, right? A lot of, at least in my opinion, a lot of us in the field are kind of introverted in a sense. And that's really something that you've got to work through to be able to go ahead and, and speak up when it's necessary. You know, I, I'm kind of curious as to how in your job as an educator, do you have conversations with the students that say, all right, if we Willy Wonka you through a magic elevator into the future of your career, do you see yourself standing in front of a room full of other people or a client or talking about the project? I mean, there was no practice. There was no, hey, this is how you can work on these things. These are some, like, for example, I get asked this question a lot, and it's to the point where it would make a very, very short blog post. But people will say, I want to be an architect, so what should I be doing now? And this might be coming from an eighth grader. And they'll say, what should I be doing now? Like, what books should I be reading? And I say, don't read any books right now. That's not what you should be doing. I said, if, if books are stupid, books are, words are dumb. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to practice, try to mentally prepare yourself for this journey that you're going to go on. I said, the thing that I think that would benefit you the most is to be able to articulate why you do or do not like something. And that can be as simple as when I walk into a room, look at the room, go, do I like it? Do I not like it? And if you go, yeah, I like it. I go, well, why do you like it? And articulate why you like it. Understand how things make you feel, how you recognize the way things appear, the role that you see that different room layouts or room sizes or the light that's hitting the room or the furniture they have in the room. If it works, if it doesn't work, why does it work? Why doesn't it work? Does it make the experience in the space better? These are traits that architects need to be good at because what you're trying to do, and this is something I've said a billion times, I, should, I feel like I should patent it. It has to do with you being able to 
articulate why you do or don't like something means that you can recreate a success without duplicating a solution. So if something works good for you, you don't have to just recreate it in order to have a similar success. If you understand why it worked, then you can replicate that success without having to do the exact same thing all over again. Yeah, without copying that solution. Yeah, that's just understanding. I think that's a pretty good point. I mean, I would say that I try to push that in my early, well, in all my students uh, in my classes because I try to get them to explain why they did or did not do something or why they like or don't like something beyond the fact of, oh, it looks cool. Yeah, right. It's neato. If we're in the 50s, it's neato. I was like, no one ever said it was neato. (laughs) No, most of it's like, it looks cool. Or the color is this or whatever. In reality, that ties back to that critical thinking aspect of it, of being able to think about why it is and extract or extrapolate those reasons and then be able to express them in a way that makes sense. Yeah, It doesn't even have to be architecture. It could be this pen or that pair of pants. It doesn't matter. But somehow that you can start to think about the world around you in that terminology or in that way, in that language. Yeah. You know what the truth is, is if you say, why do you like it? And they go, because it's cool. You know what? That's actually not a wrong. It's not a bad answer. But then the next question is, <laughs> well, but why is it cool? Why is it cool? Yeah, I know. Right? Like what comes after that? Or I'm not going to dispute. You go, look at this. It is dope. That's why this is awesome. Because it's just really, really, <laughs> it's amazing. And you go, granted, it is amazing. But can you tell me why it's amazing? Or can you tell me what you did that made it be amazing? That's the next step, okay? The likelihood of dope is almost as likely as neato, just so you know. (laughs) Uh, I think dope is only 20 years old. (laughs) Neato is like 40 to 50 years old. Yeah, they're still not saying either one. Jeepers. No. It's the bee's knees. Oh, no. Okay, so let's go on to (laughs) critical skill number three on my list. So this one, I debated... Whether or not this fell into a quality or a skill, um, I'm still on the fence. So cut me some slack, people, if you disagree with me putting it on my list. But I put attention to detail. And you go, all right, Pop, fine, whatever. But what does that actually mean? And, and I'm not talking about whether or not you're any good at seeing tiny things. So <laughs> what I'm referring to is your ability to see something as a collection of its parts. To me, that's what detail is. Detail is like, I like this song, but when you listen to the song, can you like listen to it in such a way that he goes, this is what the drums are doing right here that contributes. This is what the bass line's doing. This is what the lead guitar is doing. What's the rhythm guitar is doing. The song is a collection of all the parts, but being able to understand how each individual part contributes to the whole, that's the attention to detail that I'm talking about, but in an architectural way. So when I walk into a space, It's floor details. It's how the wall intersects with this other wall or how the window is framed into that wall or how the ceiling and the walls come together or where the lights are placed. And it's all these little bitty things that add up to the total. Because sometimes when people say, and this kind of goes back to the last topic, at least the last thing on the list, which was your ability to articulate why something is good or is not good. Sometimes when we have clients, they'll show me a picture and they're like, I really like this. And you say, why do you like it? They go, I don't know. It just feels good. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and they say, well, only you and other architects will ever notice this. That's happened to me on a number of times. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like some, they didn't build something right. And I go, that's not right. And they're like, who would notice that? Only you, the guy that drew it would ever notice that. And I take great umbrage. Speaking of big words. When somebody says that, because I go, all of these add up to the collective 
whole. So when somebody says something just feels good and they don't actually know why it feels good, it might be because the ceiling is the way it is and because the window is the size that it is and it's in this wall and it gets this type of light. All these things add up to that feeling that something is good. Mm -hmm. And I go, so all of those parts in their collective whole, that's the attention to detail. It's all the little parts, but the role that they play within the whole, that's the attention to detail. That's what I'm talking about. I would agree and maybe come at it from a slightly different perspective about that. I think attention to detail does mean somewhat paying attention to the smaller aspects of things. Now, I don't necessarily mean that's like looking at the tiny parts, but like you say, the parts make up the whole, but being able to realize that the parts are just as important as the whole, right? So that they all add together to make that end product. And while the end product might be really cool, that's because all the separate components that come together to make it are also really cool that there's something about that that makes it happen and realizing maybe even understanding to the point that you really place an importance on those smaller parts as they get developed and those kinds of things now granted i could go to saying it deals with everything whether that's writing or drawing or any of these kinds of things but just in a general sense i think it is that idea that even the smallest parts in the whole really still matter. Of course they do. I don't know if you either misheard or I misspoke, but yeah, to me, all the little things are what matter. When I said about the tiny things, it wasn't, I just meant like detail might be, oh, I'm just looking at the small things. Just looking at the small things isn't what I'm talking about. It's looking at all those small things, but understanding how they fit within the whole and that they all have a role to play and that them added up together is what makes like looking at the stitching on a shirt or seeing how fashion they might say on my jacket, I have four buttons and how are my four buttons on the sleeve stitched in and what color thread are they using? And are the buttons touching and is maybe button number four different than buttons one, two, and three. There's all these little gestures that can come in that actually might go, that's a really nice jacket. That's the big picture, right? That's a really nice jacket. Yeah. All the little parts is my liner is a color or a pattern in the stitching that holds my liner in the jacket is orange instead of matching the field color of my fabric and the buttons are done a certain way. And it's all those things, all those things together decide whether or not you like that jacket. Well, put that in an architectural sense. I did have this conversation just the other day because I don't know what's made it put in my head, but people's attention to detail it used to be a survival instinct you know your ability to see something that was different oh yeah or unusual was like the hey i'm looking at this field of grass and that grass over there is moving different which means something might eat me like i need to pay attention to that like i need to see yeah. that i need to notice exactly. these subtle differences and things i need to pay attention to the details because it's what would keep me alive back then mm -hmm. now we don't worry about things jumping out of the grass and eating us anymore so for some people, that kind of paying attention, just like when they walk into an environment, paying attention to the things that are different or why they might be different and what could happen as a result of them being different, doesn't show up on everybody's radar screen. But I will tell you that most of the architects I know, that at least the ones that I admire, they still have that trait. They still look and see what's different, why is it different, and what is it doing in the whole, and what does it contribute to my experience or to what I experience when I walk into a space. That's attention to detail for me. So let's move on to item number four. Our last one, yeah? For today, our last skill. Well, 
like I said, I saved some things. They're little bonus at the end, and it had to do with how much time we wanted to give ourselves. But so, and I also didn't want to have a hundred items on my list. I said, well, let's pick four and get into it. And if we get done early, we then we can go home and have a beer. But so the last critical skill for today is three dimensional visualization, and that's seeing something in your mind and being able to manipulate that imagined view within your mind it's hard and there's loads of people that can't do it and honestly i know a lot of architects that don't think three-dimensionally yeah i know a lot of people in the field that don't do that or can't do that yeah it doesn't mean that you can't be an architect i'm saying but man if you can do it it is a huge asset for you to be able to think of something in your mind and this really starts to fit in at its very basis level to things like scale and proportion like you just Sometimes after you've done it or if you feel like you have a good grip on it, it just feels right. You can look at something and go, proportions off, scales off. It needs to be tall. It needs to be shorter. It needs to be thinner. It needs to be thicker or whatever it is, just so that it feels right when you're in the space and you can project what that would be like for different sized human beings to engage in it or experience it or stand next to it. A lot of times in my early career, this manifested itself working with, with steel. And I'm not designing to steal based on its structural capacities because what I'm asking it to do can be done with a much smaller piece than what I'm drawing it to be. But aesthetically, visually, it needs to be bigger so it looks like it's doing the job it needs to do. Does that make sense? Yeah. Where steel comes into it at least? Because it could be a two by two member, but that instills a sense of, oh my gosh, it's going to fall on me and kill me. Yeah. It's just not right. So while I do think this is a critical skill, I'm not sure that everybody who listens to today's episode will think that three-dimensional visualization is a skill, or that they even think that it has any validity to it at all. And that really has to do with the how pervasive technology is within our profession, because there's lots of things now that can help you with your three-dimensional visualization. You don't have to do it in your head anymore. You can just If you're really bad at it, but you have a job that requires you to have some kind of skill in that arena. So get really good at modeling three-dimensionally. And you can look at it on the screen, you know, or put on VR goggles. There's lots of things that help with that thing now. Yeah. And there are times where I'm jealous of students today because of the abilities that they have. Because a lot of times when I was a student, my biggest trouble was getting the 3D images out of my head onto a piece of paper in a way that made sense or that was with the clarity of what it was in my mind because I wasn't that skilled with the pencil and drawing those things. But I would still say I find a lot of times when I had younger people in my office and they struggled with three-dimensional thinking, even though they could model things, they still struggled a little bit. It was still difficult for them to imagine some stuff, even if they could model it. But I do agree that it's probably not as huge of an issue as it used to be in a sense, because it may be easier now to create those things than it was before. Yeah, I think you can definitely take advantage of technology to make up for shortcomings in this area. So that's the only reason why I thought maybe it's a critical skill with an asterisk by it. Yeah. But I still feel confident that Part of that three-dimensional visualization isn't just understanding top and bottom and left and right and front and back, that sort of thing, but scale and proportion figure into this. And I do think that architects are not as good at scale and proportion as they used to be. And maybe this is, you know, 
old man walking uphill to school both ways, fighting bears with his loof leaf binder thinking, you know. Yeah. But I think the reliance that people have on the computer to do some of this spatial thinking for them, this visualization for them, is they have bad scale and proportion skills. That's my hot sports opinion. I can agree with that to a certain extent, because I, mean, I think there are still times when I'm able to look at students' work, the three-dimensional modeling and the visualization that, that they've produced is technically, I guess, outstanding or visually great, but things like scale and proportion or even just the idea of the space that they don't realize, space that's six feet wide and 30 feet tall may not be the most comfortable space to be. Yeah. It's a little back and forth to be able to visualize what would that space really look like or how would it feel to be in it? So I'll give you the asterisk and I'll give you the old man point of view, but I, I still think it's a very useful skill. And again, one that you can cultivate and maybe it's a little bit easier now to cultivate than in the past. Yeah. Awareness contributes to your ability to be successful with your visualization. Knowing what you don't know and being aware of what your shortcomings might be just means, all right, well, I'd, Instead of solving it in my brain using these abilities that I have, I'm going to solve it on a computer using these abilities that I have. But you still have to realize it's something that you need to deal with yeah, yeah. and attend to. True. So that's why I still kept it on my list. And so for me, those are the four big. And I don't know if, if you have something, a hot opinion that says you left off blank because there's a couple more that I could certainly put on here but these are ones that I moved into the qualities these are qualities that you would be benefited by having and those are things like passion I don't think passion's a skill <laughs> right passion is a quality mm -hmm. and it's a really good quality to have if you want to be an architect to have passion for architecture is pretty important Right, Because not many of us are motivated just by collecting a paycheck. Yeah. And that's not to say that I don't love my paycheck. I do. I love it. <laughs> I'd love it if it was a lot bigger. But I don't get up early and come to work and log 50 plus hours every single week for my paycheck. I do it because I like it. Yeah. I do it because I think 30 more minutes will make this better. And I'm willing to concede those 30 minutes to do it. And that's passion. I don't know how else to describe it. I love it. I love doing it. And that's not to say I love every aspect of my job. I hate lots of stuff about my job. Everybody does. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. And I think that's maybe a part of it because you really do have to have that passion to outweigh the things that you hate. Everybody hates parts of their job. That's the nature of human beings, maybe, at least nowadays. I think nowadays there's at least some aspect of your job that you don't enjoy. I shouldn't say hate. You don't enjoy, but you've got to have that that passion and that enjoyment in order to stick with it. it certainly helps. And again, that's not an architectural yeah. trait. That's a life trait. The only other note I had jotted down here is a quality versus skill. It's one of the ones that rolled out of my head when I first started thinking about the topic was creativity. It's one that gets brought up a lot, you know, in the emails that get sent in to me. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm not very creative, or how do you get your ideas, or I'm in studio and I see other people's designs and they're so much better than mine. I'm going to drop out of school because clearly I'm not creative enough to be an architect. And I always have to go, whoa, tap the brakes. 
being an architect is not all about the creative process. There's so many different roles that people have that creativity, it's a good quality to have, but it's not a rate limiting step necessarily to a successful career in architecture. You don't have to be creative to do what we do on some of the projects we work on. Like I write in the specs, I don't think that if I said, what is your go-to skill? Like, what are you most proud of? I think him or her being creative is pretty low on the list. There has to do with organization and thought process and workflow. And they think about things in a much different way than the person that's thinking, hey, I want to put this stone in this shape, in this orientation, with this pattern, with this type of rake joint that's going to intersect this window that's made out of this material with this piece of glass at this high off the floor. It's a different kind of execution altogether. I don't think that creativity is a requirement necessarily to be the end-all be-all within an architecture firm. If you want to be a designer, yeah, of course, you got to be creative. If that's the job you want is designer, that's a critical skill. But it's not a critical skill overall, I think, to be an architect. I would totally agree. I think we've talked about this before in some other contexts, but there are people, even when I was in school, that you would know that maybe they weren't a great designer, but they were going to be an awesome project manager Mm -hmm. because they were organized and on time and all those kinds of things, always minding their P's and Q's and everything was in order. So I don't necessarily think that you have to be creative to succeed in the field. There's a certain pathway that requires you to be creative, but I don't think every pathway requires you to be creative. Yeah. Yeah. I would say the same thing about organization. There are some architects that I know that are not organized at all. They're so disorganized that it makes me crazy, but they managed to make it work for them. And so I think it's one of those things that it could be helpful depending upon where you want to go, but it's not crucial. It's not a a gateway or a barrier for you being successful in the field of architecture. Yeah. We just need to get more high school counselors to understand that when they're recommending for people to not take this path because They're either, they can't draw and they're bad at math. I mean, I go, which one is it? Like, (laughs) right? It kind of like, yeah, uh, source of frustration. So that wraps up the professional portion of today's episode. And all the serious architects can now punch out and we can move on to this episode's would you rather question. (laughs) Let's do it. I came up with this question and I told someone else in my office, one of the people that I go to and say, this is what I'm thinking. One of your testers? Yeah, I have, I have testers to see, like, got to go, is there any meat on the bone, right? And the would you rather yeah. is a lot simpler because, you know, you can kind of, the idea is you can work through this in five minutes as opposed to 20 minutes on some of these hypotheticals that we would do. So the issue that we ran into with this question before I pull the curtain back and tell you what the question was, that's to you, the listener. Andrew knows what the question is. I almost had more questions as a result of the question than I had. Like the answer is short, but there's so many questions as a result of the question. So let's just see how this goes. (laughs) All right, let's do it. Here you go. Would you rather have the ability to see one hour into the future or 100 years into the future? And the first question you should be asking yourself is, what does that actually mean? Like, do I see it in my mind's eye? Can I be somewhere? Like, how do I go somewhere and go, well, I want to know this. And can I go somewhere and see what that is? And I went, okay, really? So what this is, is it's like you're a ghost. So if you want to see one hour into the future, you have the ability to astral project yourself into the future. So nobody can see you and you can't change anything, but you can go wherever you want. I'm imagining I can just close my eyes and there I am. Yeah. 
Sure. Why not? That was my idea. I wasn't thinking about time traveling. It's just about being able to see it in my brain or something. In a sense, you're still kind of time traveling, even though you're not having the ability to impact. You can just see what happened. Now, of course, there is the, you see something that happened and then you come back to like that moment, the current present time, and you do something that changes what future activity can end up being. Sure. That's certainly a possibility, but we're not going to have that level of conversation with this question. <laughs> this is just, do you want to just be able to see what's in the future by an hour? Yeah. Here's the other thing. The question was, how often can I do this? The guy I asked this question to, he, he tries to cheat constantly because that's what everybody does. So he's always trying to find out. <laughs> I have to come up with all these rules to kind of rate limit him. Loopholes, baby. Yeah, it's always going for the loophole. That's right. So what I decided is the frequency at which you could see into the future was predicated on the shortest length of time of your options. So if you want to see one hour into the future, you can't do that any more than once every 60 minutes, right? So if I go, boop, I come back, I can't do it again for another 60 minutes. And if I use a year... I can't do it more than once a year because we were trying to figure out, would it be more interesting to do one year into the future and a hundred years in the future as opposed to one hour in the future versus 100 years into the future? We're trying to make it hard, right? We're trying to make it hard to decide between the two. <laughs> yeah. So rather than me just imagining all the loopholes that you yourself are trying to exploit right now, you just give me your answer. Tell me what your answer is. One hour. And why? Honestly, because a hundred years doesn't do me any good. But, well, it's, yeah, I could. Absolutely could do you good. How? In 100 years, I'm not going to be around. Well, you're not, but you can see what happened, and then you come back and say, oh, I'm going to go buy Bitcoin, because <laughs> <laughs> there is no feudal currency in the future, so I'm going to go put all my money into Bitcoin right now. There's things that you can do that will absolutely benefit you now, but they're probably more financial or like, hey, I'm going to go have volcano erupts and the west coast of the United States falls into the ocean. So I'm going to go move to the east coast. Like there's things that you could do now based on what you see if you project yourself 100 years in the future. Now, the thing about it is... Okay, but the problem with that is, is that how am I going to get that information? That's what I'm saying. I mean, I'm assuming if I projected myself 100 years in the future, I don't have any control over where I'm going or what I'm doing. No, or you how do. long am I there for? Like... That's a reason. Do I get to go no, research no, what's happened in the past 50 years or what? Well, that's what I already told you the answer to that question. I didn't tell you how long you could stay there, but I told you that you could go. You're projecting yourself there. So you can show up 100 years in the future wherever you want to be. You have absolute dominion over that. So if you want to be 100 years in the future in Paris or in the Sports Hall of Fame, you know, wherever you want to be, you can be there. Okay. I understand that. But in other words, for your example, I would have to project myself 100 years in the future into California to find out that it's no longer there in order for me to come back and say, well, I'm going to move. Because if I said I'm going to project myself 100 years into Paris, and Paris is just fine, how am I going to know that it all fell apart? Or if your example for there's no more currency, well, what if that happened five years before I got there? So that doesn't really matter, even for anyone in my future. Well, that's assuming that you can't actually like look something up. If I'm just an astral projection, I feel like there's no interaction. I'm going to have to go stand over somebody's shoulder and watch them surf the future internet to tell me the history lesson. Because if I'm an astral projection, I can't go pick up a book or I can't well, back I don't the think you're, and grab my you're not solving this. Well, then you're doing a poor job of solving that problem then because 
there's going to be museums. If that's the case, if that's the thing, you think that if the West Coast of the United States falls into the ocean, that that information is not going to be readily available without you having to hope that it's on the front page of some paper that somebody's reading that you're walking up to at a newsstand? There's ways to solve that. Okay, so then, then I have to go with a very pointed purpose then, it seems, if it's going to be 100 years. I have to go with a very specific purpose in mind in order to be able to do that. Because let's say, all right, I'm going to go to a museum. Well, then I'm not going to find out anything about what happens to my family because the possibilities of them being in a museum is a little bit slight. So then I don't get that aspect. Well, look, all the problems that you're describing right now for 100 years exist for one hour in the future. You still can't flip a paper. I know. You still can't manipulate anything. But I also think that would be less of an issue because it's only one hour. <laughs> yeah. So what are you going to learn? Don't run that red light. Yeah. Don't get into that elevator. Maybe. Yeah. It seems like if it's one hour, you're solving little teeny tiny things. But if you're going 100 years, you're learning, hey, Earth doesn't exist in 100 years. We're all on Mars now. And what does that do for me? I don't know that it does anything for you. <laughs> but I'm saying just I think it has to do with the types of information you might be looking at. Because one year is, is kind of, hey, what can I do for me? Right, what can I learn about my immediate like I go, what would have benefited you today if you had known one hour ahead of time? What would have changed today? I don't know. You would have said, I don't want to record that call with Borson today. <laughs> right? So you kind of go. I, I would have fixed my Dropbox issue had I known it was going to happen. Small things, yes, but still. But according to you, how would you have known? Because you can't get on a computer one hour into the future. You wouldn't know that it's a problem. Well, but am I going to project myself into my kitchen and watch myself doing this? I guess that's the question. If I'm projecting myself into my own future, maybe this just boils down to the understanding of what's happening and how I'm getting this information about the future. Well, that's what I was saying. When we start talking about this, all we got was more questions. Yeah. Like, how does this work? And the truth is, is I didn't even consider the fact that you could project yourself into your own future, like watch yourself doing something. That's what I assumed from the beginning, which is why I was like, 100 years doesn't do me any good. Yeah, no, I, I was thinking more big picture. I was thinking... <laughs> Wasn't thinking about, am I eating a peanut butter jelly sandwich in an hour? I don't, I don't care what I'm doing in an hour. Maybe, maybe not. If I project myself into my future and I see myself on a stretcher, I might decide maybe I should do something different between now and then. Well, you might just go, something happened in the next hour that made me on a stretcher. So I'm... I'm just going to sit in my chair and not move. Yeah, and then that's what happened to you. You were sitting in your chair when the ceiling collapsed. <laughs> exactly. Then, yeah, a tree fell over and smushed my house. Yeah. I had a coronary. I don't know. Yeah, I think my curiosity is what would make me do the 100 years into the future. I think the idea that I would go, well, what does 100 years in the future look like? Okay, but you also said, though, that you decided that it was based on time. So if I go to 100 years in the future, I can only do that once. No, no, no. I sat on the shortest amount of time between your options. So if you have the choice of an hour, a hundred years, you can only do it the time difference of the shortest span. Because if you could go once an hour for every hour, then you'd just do that constantly. I think like during your waking existence, you would probably project yourself into the future to see what was going to happen every hour that you were awake. Yeah. Like every hour you'd do it. Probably, at least pretty close. I mean, until it got boring. Right. If you could only do it once every hundred years, that means I can do it once, and then I'm dead by the time the next time. No. Yeah, that's not what that is. No, I don't understand this. If it's 100 years, how often can I do it? Every one hour. Every one hour? 
Yeah, because that was your choice. So let's just say you can do it once a week. Now, would that change your answer to go one hour into the future once a week? Yes, I would not do that. I would go 100 years. Yeah, if you could only do it once a week, yeah, yeah. you'd go 100. Yeah. Part of me was thinking, if you could go into your future once an hour, that's what you would do. <laughs> and then how long do you get to stay there? Well, that's my other question. Are you spending 30 minutes of every hour there? And then you come back and an you're like, another future. hour, then I go back for 30 minutes, and then an hour, and then I go back another 30 minutes? Now, you wouldn't have to work, because right? Because you could go into the future and find out ways to... You become the world's greatest day trader, you know? <laughs> True. Yeah. I would just make sure that I'm always looking at the computer. And so I just project myself into the future to see what I'm looking at. Yeah. Or just always leave the stock market up on my screen. It's always and there. On, and then I could just. Yeah. Yep. I think that the time spent there is a different thing as well. But if it was more than once, I wouldn't really want to be going 100 years in the future every hour. But even if it was once a day, I mean, once a week is fine. but there's some magic line in there between what it is. I mean, my understanding when I was picking one hour was because it seemed like I could only go into the future a hundred years once. That doesn't do me any good. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. All right. So I'm going to say that 100 years into the future is what I would do. Are you going to stick with one hour? I don't know. Cause I still don't understand the established parameters, but it sounds like I might do a hundred. If the opportunity to do that is more than once. I might go ahead and pick 100 years. All right, there you go. Another episode in the record books. I hope you enjoyed the more serious part of today's discussion. Thank you for being with us today for episode 76, The Critical Skills of an Architect. Special thanks to our sponsor, BQE Core Architect, cloud-based software for time and expense tracking, billing, and accounting. In addition, shout out to our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. If you liked today's episode, please take the next 15 seconds and head over to your favorite podcast listening app and hit that subscribe or follow button so you can get unbelievable new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks. While you're there, please consider leaving us a comment, and I would greatly appreciate it if you would leave us a five-star I can do this rating. Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this glorious episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. <laughs>